Hey everybody and welcome to a special bonus episode of My Sentiments Exactly. My name is Kay and I'm your host. For those who may not know, September is NICU Awareness Month, something very dear to my heart as my daughter was born prematurely and journeyed through the NICU. I'm so excited to have a special guest, Katie McFadden, former NICU nurse, with me on the show to help bring awareness. MSE podcast is dedicated to talking about the hard stuff and facilitating the conversations necessary for growth, healing, transformation, and genuine community. Now it's your turn. My hope is that you finish this episode feeling empowered to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing the MSE podcast conversation starters deck available at bygracenp.com. May these cards inspire you to speak out and be heard, and may you be authentically embraced for the uniqueness of your journey. In this episode, we're going to be talking about medical racism and racial disparities in the NICU. I have included a few short clips from Katie's testimony before the New York State Senate and Assembly regarding the hearing on the New York Health Act on May 28th, 2019. Quick point, yes, because we still have I, a few more folks to go. Throughout the day, people have talked about if we pass the New York Health Act, we'll have to ration care. We're already rationing care. Yep. The, it's, it's just that when I have three babies and they all require eight hours of care on a 12-hour shift, that means I have to decide what half of the care they're not going to receive that shift. And then if I'm honest about it, I may lose my license and my job. So I think we need to stop thinking about, oh, we're going to be rationing care. We are rationing care. It's just that black people have gotten the short end of the stick. So the... If we're worried about rationing care, it can't only be when white people may be affected. Thank okay. you. Assembly Health Committees, thank you for taking the time to listen to our testimony today. My name is Katie McFadden. I'm a registered nurse certified in neonatal intensive care. Last month, I resigned from my position as a staff nurse in the neonatal intensive care unit at SUNY Downstate Medical Center in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, where 90% of patients are of African descent. In the five years I worked for Downstate, I cared for many patients who died or suffered permanently worse outcomes for conditions we know how, but did not have the resources to optimally manage and treat. I frequently worked shifts with half the nurses we would have needed to meet national safety standards. Even when we managed to get through these shifts without major, major medical errors, which were common and are common, our fragile patients still suffered Babies do not cry while they're in the womb. And when they're in the NICU and only receive a fraction of the care that they need, prolonged cry times create a toxic level of stress hormones that forever changes the way their brain forms. Working in an under-resourced NICU, I could literally hear my patient's neurodevelopmental potential diminish as I focused on higher priority and life-sustaining care. Um, Downstate's NICU also lacks a lactation consultant, physical and occupational therapists, mental health services for parents, a developmental care specialist, a peer support and volunteer coordinator, and a dedicated nurse educator. 
Services NICU babies need not just to thrive, but simply survive. Some of these absences were in direct violation of state regulations. All are considered standards by relevant professional organizations and are common in other level four NICUs. Less than 10 miles from predominantly white serving private hospitals, conditions at Downstate are worlds away and it shows an exponentially worse hospital and population level outcomes. In 1850, our Constitution counted most black people as three-fifths a person, and the white-black infant mortality rate was 1 to 1 1.5. In 2019, the public insurance covering the majority of black birthing people pays half as much for obstetric care as the private insurance covering the majority of white birthing people. And the white-black infant mortality rate is worse at 1 to 2 to 3. The largest single driving force behind racial disparities in maternal infant health outcomes in New York City is the lower quality of care provided at a concentrated set of minority serving hospitals. Quality is worse because staff and services are missing. Staff and services are missing because we cannot afford them. We cannot afford them because re reimbursement from public insurance are considerably less than the true cost of care and we care for a disproportionate amount of patients on public insurance because of historic and ongoing racial segregation and economic disenfranchisement. Even in neighborhoods with better funded and safer private hospitals, widespread illegal yet unchallenged insurance discrimination causes de facto racial segregation. We've never stopped having health, racial health disparities in this nation because we've never started valuing the lives of all people equally. A single-payer system eliminates the, fundings, the funding disparities that drive the racial disparities in New York. It eliminates the burden of underinsurance and high out-of-pocket costs that make necessary quality care still out of reach for birthing people and their families. For this and for all of the reasons presented before you today, I urge you to pass the New York Health Act. Thank you for your time. All right, so Katie, um, in light of these um, clips that we've been able to hear, um, can you just expound a little bit on what exactly you feel the issue is when it comes to um, the topic of NICU awareness? Um, where's your heart in that? Um, I guess my the thing that is closest to my heart when it comes to NICU awareness is really an issue um, that I see as being incredibly important to New York City. And I, okay. and I don't, I'm not enough a scholar of the issue to know how translatable the issues we're experiencing in New York City are to um, to smaller cities that don't have as many hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm I'm happy to speak. Uh, so I guess what is going <laughs> what's going on in New York City is that um, uh, I'm I'm just going to tell you kind of like how I came into this work from the beginning. Is yeah, that okay? that's totally fine. Okay, yeah. cool. So I um. I was raised in upstate New York, and I went to nursing school in uh, um, in at SUNY Binghamton, and I moved to Central Brooklyn in 2013 to do my midwifery degree. 
And while I was in midwifery school, I um, applied to work in a um, for NICU positions because I wanted to work in out-of-hospital birth settings, and I wanted to be really comfortable um, taking care of sick babies um, so that if – you know, I ever encountered an unexpected situation outside of the hospital. I felt really comfortable supporting that baby until we could get them um, to where they needed to be for care. So I applied to a bunch of NICU positions throughout New York City and then kind of coincidentally got hired to the same hospital where I was going to midwifery school, Um, which worked out great for me because I had moved to live close to midwifery school, so everything was in a couple blocks radius. Um, But that's all to say that, like, it was slightly coincidental. It was – it's not coincidental in the – it's not coincidental in, like, if we had three hours, I could tell you, like, a huge backstory. Gotcha, yeah. For the most most part, like – it was a coincidence that I ended up working where I was working. Okay. Um, but the hospital where I worked is in East Flatbush, Brooklyn, which is a predominantly black neighborhood. And I say a black neighborhood because it is, um, a diverse black neighborhood. We have lots of Afro, uh, recent Afro-Caribbean immigrants. We have, um, uh, the American descendants of, slaves, and we have immigrants from Africa, and then the kids of the recent Afro-Caribbean and African immigrants. So it's a very diverse community, but what everybody has in common is that there um, is is black skin. Um, And the hospital where I was working, we served over 90% of our patient population was black, and in the five years that I worked there, I never took care of a white baby. Mm, wow. Yeah. So that's so when I talk about like some of these issues are specific to New York City is most cities are small enough that they only really have one NICU. So all babies Got are you. being taken care of in the Got same you. environment. Whereas in New York City, because we have like thirty hot like thirty NICUs, okay, um, and sense. it's such a large city that we have there are hospitals that must only serve one racial demographic because okay. of the extent and ongoing legacy of segregation and economic disenfranchisement and um, racist housing policies. Got you. So, yeah. So in school we had uh, in in school we had a one hour lecture in a three year program. We had a one hour lecture on racial disparities in infant and maternal health outcomes. And in that lecture, they were sharing data that in New York City, black babies were three times more likely to die than white babies by their first birthday. And I'm looking at the data, and I'm like, wow, this data is recent, and it's from, like, right where I'm working, and it's about black babies, and I only take care of black babies. So Mm -hmm. it's problematic that I didn't know that that disparity existed beforehand and that I'd been working in this environment this whole time and didn't know, like, the context I was working in. Gotcha. Um, it's problematic that like these the most babies who die before their first birthday do so in the NICU or had NICU care. So I'm thinking mm. like most of these babies that are dying must be my patients. They must be the kids I'm taking care of. What's gotcha. going like if I don't understand what is making them more likely to die before their first birthday, who would? 
Yeah. So all of my alarms were going off. I'm sure, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so essentially, like, from that, more, like, more or less from that lecture until now, two and a half years later, I've really mm-hmm. tried to answer, like, to address that those problems, like, that it was problematic, I didn't know anything about it, um, and try to answer those questions of, like, if these are, if the babies I'm serving are the babies that are more likely to die, what is it about the care we're providing them that is causing this to be the case? Um, so after I graduated midwifery school, I decided not to get a midwifery to like try and find a midwife job. Mm-hmm. Um, I had three years of, I've been working in the NICU then um, for three years. And I was like, well, like I finally kind of have my feet underneath me at this job. I kind of understand mm-hmm. who does what, like, let me see if I can like do some good here. Like, let me see if I can really understand what's going on and affect some change. So yeah. um, the, I started attending, so I started like just looking what was going on in New York city and who was talking about reproductive justice and who was talking about health disparities. And I ended up at a, um, event hosted by the DOH where Dr. Elizabeth Howell was presenting her research and she is a researcher out of Mount Sinai and she okay. um, uh, which is a large hospital system in New York City a large, okay, large private hospital system in New York City and um, she had published a paper in 2008 that showed that the 40% of the disparity 40% of the difference in outcomes between black and white babies in New York City had mm-hmm. to do with the worst quality of care provided at a concentrated set of minority serving hospitals and doing air quotes around that. Um, wow. So what they found was like, even at, um, at a predominantly white serving hospital, like, the complication rate for white patients would be like 2% and for black patients, it would be 3%. So it's slightly worse, but a little bit. Mm -hmm. And at a predominantly black serving hospital, the complication rate for white patients would be like 18% and the complication rate for black patients would be 20%. So again, it's slightly worse for black people, but clearly the issue is less like the inter-hospital differences and how the races are being treated and the fact that you go from having a two percent complication rate like a generally a two to three percent complication rate at one hospital to an 18 to 20 percent complication rate at another hospital like there's something qualitatively different about those hospitals that the care provided to everyone who walks through those doors regardless of race is much better at the at some hospitals than it is at others. Um, So that her first paper came out in 2008. She had another one that came out in 2016 that showed that the severe maternal morbidity um, rate or like the difference in severe maternal morbidity rate between black and white women would Mm -hmm. drop by half, by 47.7% if black women were going to the same hospitals that white women were going to to give birth. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. Right? So it's, it's like more than interesting, it's very frustrating that 
this research exists and it's been out there for a while. And yet in New York itself, like very few people know about that research and fewer people are drawing, are like connecting the dots to say, well, hey, if it's quote unquote a concentrated set of minority serving hospitals, that's mm-hmm. really only like three or four hospitals that like gotcha. I can, that we can make. They're, you know, they're anonymous in Dr. Howell's research because of the research protocol that she went through. But in real life, there are only a handful of hospitals that serve, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent black patient populations. So we know who she's talking about. And, like, I was working where she was talking about. Um, So, like, I was like, ooh, that, you know, so I kind of already suspected, like, I wonder Mm -hmm. if part of the problem is that, (laughs) like, we, I always knew we were understaffed nurses frequently. So, like, in my head being like, I wonder if the medical errors that happen when we're understaffed are part of this phenomenon, and if we had more nurses, care would be better. And then, like, to hear, oh, that's not just a thought in my head, that's, like, something somewhat proven in the literature that is something qualitatively different about the hospital where I'm working. So mm-hmm. the that like pretty much the first year out of of midwifery school, I did like a bunch of different self study courses to try and be like a better NICU nurse essentially. Because gotcha. that was the only NICU I had worked in, I didn't really have like anything to compare it to. So like okay. I'm I never really like the majority of staff at the hospital, I was the only white nurse at the hospital where I worked. Wow. The majority, yeah. Um, so, like, it's very, very different, I think, from what people will have in their heads. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, probably the nursing staff was about 60% black, maybe half um, recent immigrants from with a, uh, from Af- Afro-Caribbean countries or from Africa, and about half mm-hmm. um people who were born and raised, you know, black Americans. Um, and then about a third Filipina nurses and then like kind of like a hodgepodge like me and the Ukrainian, you know, like. <laughs> yeah, um, I got you. Um, so the majority of the administration at the hospital is, um, is I'm sorry, I got off on a tangent. Um, so, Oh, oh yeah, and the majority of the medical staff is um, are foreign trained, so they're kind of like from you know every shift will have a doctor from a different country in the world. Um, oh, okay. So, like on rounds, the doctors are having thoughtful discussions about what appropriate medical care would be for each baby, and like not having other NICU experience, I had. N- no way to gauge if their thoughtful conversations were actually like up to date <laughs> with current research. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And so that, so um, I did, I became certified as a neonatal intensive care nurse. Um, I, which is, so when you go to nursing school, like it's really the majority of your education is focused on taking care of of adults and taking care of elderly people. Um, and okay. so in all of nursing school, you may have like like five clinical shifts on a labor delivery floor and one where you float to the NICU. So okay. if, 
if you don't, like, if when you come into a NICU as a new nurse, you really need to be, like, trained straight from the beginning. You know what I mean? Like, you mm-hmm. can you can make very few assumptions of what that nurse understands of appropriate neonatal care just coming out of nursing school alone. Yeah. Um, so in nursing, one way you can demonstrate that you have um, a particular competency in a specific field is by studying and passing certification exams. Um, so I read like a full neonatal textbook to pass that exam and like every page was a new thing that I didn't know before that nobody had taught me during my orientation that mm-hmm. would change how I provide hands-on care because the way I had been doing it previously was potentially detrimental to the development of the patients I was working with. Got and you. like the recommendation that I hadn't known about previously had existed for a long time. And it was just that there was no infrastructure within the hospital to properly train the oncoming nurses to Mm -hmm. practice the level of care um, in line with current recommendations. Gotcha. And so it, like, it would say stuff like, oh, you know, if you have a patient with this issue, oh, so, and then it would say stuff like, if you have a patient with this issue, refer them to your occupational therapist. And I would be like, wait, what? Like, (laughs) if you have an occupational therapist, refer them to the occupational therapist. It was just refer Mm -hmm. them to the occupational therapist. It assumed that you had that expertise on, on board at your NICU, and we did not. And it, okay. again, it assumed, it would say, like, refer to your physical therapist. We didn't have one. Refer to your speech-language pathologist. We didn't have one. Wow. Uh, every lactation recommendation that exists for how to support NICU parents, we were not following because we didn't, we had no lactation specialist assigned to the NICU. Wow. We had one lactation specialist for the hospital, but she, you know, she was working on the postpartum floor and really was only available to the mothers who are immediately postpartum. So, you know, like if you had a a 29-weeker and then at 35, 36, you know, like, and later on when you're trying to actually transition them onto the breast, there was no one with that expertise. There was nobody available. There was no training for the nurses. Um, and so, like, zero zero percent of the babies I cared for who were born before, like, 33, 30, 34, 33 weeks went home breastfeeding. Like, I wow. never, never sent an extremely low birth weight baby home on breast milk, ever, just because the support didn't exist there. And mm. so... So now I'm like, okay, well, why don't we have, like, all of these other people have these positions. Why don't we have these positions? And that led to, like, lots of angry and uncomfortable conversations with my bosses because, you know, here I am as this, like, essentially, like, an uppity white nurse sending them emails, like, why don't we have this and the other thing? And they're like, <laughs> we've, been, we've been requesting those positions from the state, like, from the state to get the money in our budget to hire those people for a decade. So, wow. like, we totally hear you that we should have those, and we're, mm-hmm. like, we're frustrated right along with you, but also, 
like, I, if you want me to show you all of the requisition forms I sent asking for these things. So, I mean, I argue back to them, and I, I'll continue to argue to anyone who will listen to me that, like, there's a point at which, like, it should not be expected of the primarily black administration of this hospital to have to deal with, to have to go so far above and beyond what is normally expected of healthcare professionals to gotcha. provide adequate care to their patients. But also what is happening in our hospital is not normal. Um, and like the, so I, I, um, so like I, I don't want to like hang out the administry. I don't want to hang out my hospital administration out to dry to say yeah. that they're not doing good jobs because oh, yeah. like they're probably going way above and beyond what any other white nurse manager in New York City is doing to try and get resources for their floor. Mm -hmm. But like if, if the state just won't give us money and like we just actually don't have it in our budget to hire these people to work at the hospital, mm -hmm. then like then I don't know what else to do but like go on Twitter <laughs> and, and try to search it up. <laughs> um, Got to, yeah. So and, and that's how uh, I think well like one you know, that's how we met is I've I've been on Twitter and trying to like tweet about issues at my NICU and like, you know, find people who are also working on um who are interested in these things and working on these things to bring attention to it. Um so then so okay, so like kind of realizing, hey, it's problem like if the only people who are the villains in this story are the hospital administration, then I must not understand this story well enough. Mm -hmm. um, so then I start learning about how we actually pay for healthcare in New York. And it is like, okay. like crazy, just like <laughs> a part of the story is like my own anti-racism journey because like a lot of, you know, like at more than one occasion, I'm, like uh, somebody's explaining something to me and I'm like, that's racist. And like, they're looking at me like, yeah, well, like, welcome to the party. <laughs> like we've, we've known racism has been going on for a long time, Katie. Like, like, thank you for joining us here in reality. <laughs> um, you know, but like to, to start off, I'm like this basic Becky from upstate New York. So I don't really know. <laughs> like I, I didn't have context for a lot of the things I was learning. Gotcha. Um, so, like, just, so how we finance healthcare in New York. So, like, just how we finance healthcare in America mm -hmm. is inherently racist. Like, the reason mm -hmm. why we didn't go for single payer in the first place was racist, and they talked about that, I think, in one of the 1690 articles was about that. Um, like, and even... Just the whole premise, like, how did I get to be 28 or 29 years old knowing that Medicaid paid about half as much for health services as what private insurance does? I knew that. I had mm. known that for a long time, that different insurances paid different amounts of money and some, like, way, way less than other people. How did I get to be so old without it occurring to me that that was, like, deeply problematic, that we were essentially assigning different values to people's lives? Like, you're worth $2,000 worth of care. You're only worth $1,000 worth of care. Mm -hmm. and like, the, so, 
like just the so essentially the main driver of the disparities in our hospital is that two thirds of black living people use Medicaid and Medicaid pays half as much as private insurance does for obstetric care. So mm -hmm. if you have a hospital where like almost everybody is on an insurance that pays half as much, then you have half as much money as a hospital that serves predominantly people on private insurance. Got you. So just like if nothing else happened besides that one fact of Medicaid paying half as much, you're going to like, why wouldn't you expect that to cause disparities down the road? Because you're not going to be able to afford as good care with half as much money. Um, mm -hmm. So, but then you like, like, so that's just a basic thing. Then you start piling, like, the more I dug, the more crazy things I found out. So, for example, like, Medicaid knows that they, that if a hospital serves a disproportionate amount of people on Medicaid, that you won't have enough money. So they created a separate funding pool called the Disproportionate Share Hospital Pool. And that's supposed to go, like, to supplement hospitals that serve a disproportionate share. But there's a crazy law in New York that means that instead of the every hospital getting like their equal share based off of how many Medicaid patients they serve. It's mm -hmm. divvied up so the private and public hospitals divide into different pools. And so mm -hmm. the private hospitals end up getting paid like 70 times more for the same services that the public hospitals provide, even though the public hospitals are providing the bulk of the care to people on Medicaid. Mm -hmm. And there's really no explanation for that besides the fact that the, like, from, from what I understand and from, like, I've, I've now really, like, pounded the pavement and visited quite a few of um, New York State legislators around Brooklyn to speak with them and their office staff is about this issue. And, like, mm -hmm. I really don't see an explanation for why the so, a dis so much of that money is ending up where it shouldn't go to the hospitals that don't actually need it, that aren't actually yeah. serving a disproportionate share, besides the fact that the private hospitals can afford to have lobbyists and the public hospitals can't. So a private mm, okay. hospital writes the bill this way and writes the formula this way, and none of the legislators realize what the downstream effects are going to be. And they're just like, oh, thanks for writing me this bill. Looks good to me. Pass it and, and move on. Gotcha. And I say that because, like, when I've gone to the actual legislators who voted on the legislation that made it this way and explained to them what's going on, their eyes are all like, huh? Like, I have no <laughs> idea. And I'm like, yeah. So if, like, if the legislators don't understand how it's panning out and, like, the health policy experts who are writing the reports explaining it to me, like, if they're not in touch with the legislators who are, like, it doesn't, so there's, that whole, like, that's a, that whole, and that is an expression of white supremacy, because if a whiter serving hospital gotcha. uses their, um, uses their bigger budget and uses the privileges, the social and economic privileges that have historically been granted to them through whiteness to create legislation that essentially robs the public hospitals to pad their profit margins, like, so there's that. Then 
like the the racist cherry on top of this cupcake is that there are like the hospital where I work is a state-run hospital. We're a part of the State University of New York, um, like university system. Mm-hmm. And there are three SUNY hospitals. There are one in Syracuse, New York, where 18% of people who give birth there are black. There's one in Long Island where 8% of people who give birth there are black. Mm-hmm. And there's SUNY Downstate where I work. And the other two hospitals get $50 million a year from Governor Cuomo in the state budget just for, like, whatever they want to do with that money that mm-hmm. SUNY Downstate doesn't get. And when I asked you. And when I asked about this, like, like, is there a reason? Like, is there a special project going on at those hospitals not going on here that he's funding? No. Like, the only explanation from people who are in the know is that Cuomo, quote, unquote, doesn't like downstate. So, like, why would wow. he give us extra money? So, like, a white man born before Jim Crow who, for some mysterious reason, doesn't like a hospital that only serves black people like, mm-hmm. I don't know wow. how else to describe that than white male supremacist governance. Wow. 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 <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't even have words. I mean, like, wow. So, like, so in our, like, that's why in your, in our lead up, like, um, I've been wanting to come on podcasts, but not necessarily for NICU parents, because, like, I feel like these issues are really something that, like, we as a society need to address. Yeah, but I have no idea that this was even, and I mean, I could see, you know, glimpses of it here and there, but I didn't Mm -hmm. realize how big of an issue it was, and for those listening um, when I reached out to Katie, I, you know, just reached out um, and was letting her know that, you know, I was interested in talking about the NICU experience as a nurse, you know, advice to parents, you know, the the typical things that we've been covering um, in the NICU Awareness Podcast. And she, re- she reached back out and, you know, let me know that there's a much bigger issue that she felt was important to address. Um, so I definitely wanted her to be able to um, have this platform to share, um, and although the advice for parents and all of that is um, important, um, topics like these are also important. Um, so yeah, Katie, I I think it's it's amazing what you're doing, um, and especially um, because you are not, you know, of African descent, for you to be such of an advocate. Um, shows that you really have a heart for people. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It shows that you, you know, you see past race, you see past color, and you are an advocate against injustice, period. Not just the injustices um, that, if solved, will benefit or serve you, if that makes sense. Yeah, Thank you so much for saying all those kind things. It's always very encouraging. To, um, thank you for those encouraging words. Oh, I'll also say, though, that, like, white supremacy is bad for everybody, including white people. Um, okay. And, like, in practical ways, that's true, and people have written think pieces about that um, mm-hmm. that are interesting. 
but I'll also say, like, uh, I think uh, some of what is happening here is that because, like, you know, what, what is the original sin? I feel like the original sin of whiteness is of essentially, like, consumerism, extraction, productivity, efficiency, like, wanting things and products above people and valuing production above people. Mm, and Okay. So, like, a lot of how we care, so just generally, like, a lot of American medicine, like, how it was invented was a tool to try and keep slaves healthier to increase agricultural output on plantations in the American South. And from from that origin of how doctors interact with patients until now, we've never had like a truth and reconciliation process where we've kind of sorted out, okay, what have we learned using this, like using Western medicine? What have we learned that's helpful for humanity? And what of how we practice medicine today is an unhelpful, unhealthy, like, byproduct of the fact that the initial intent was not necessarily people's like health and well-being but more gotcha. just that they didn't die and could be economically productive and I gotcha. think that like shows up especially in NICU care because like Nick because NICU babies aren't productive to society um, gotcha. and so like as a society like I think like the fact that some NICUs experience this degree of challenge and have such trouble getting um, getting kind of like community outrage and people up in mm-hmm. arms to fight about it is because at the end of the day, like babies don't make anybody any money. Um, Got and you. So, Got you. That makes sense. And I, so I brought that up. We need, so Something that has been really important for me to realize as I do this work and, like, as I start to understand white supremacy more is, like, it was unhelpful and unhealthy for me as a human to value productivity and efficiency as much as I did in my own life. And I think that by engaging in anti-oppression work um, and by, like, and by seeing this problem and not just walking by, what I'm learning is how like deeply like emotionally and spiritually affected I was by a mentality of an oppressor. And mm. um so I just wanted like I'm very because like I because I was the only white nurse, I feel some responsibility to speak out on issues because I like in the hospital, m- many of my black coworkers were retaliated against much earlier, much quicker, much more severely than I was. And I was hmm. getting away with saying like much more bolder things to people high people higher in the administration without any blowback for a lot longer time. Um, Got you. So like and I had coworkers who like I more than one coworker pull me aside and essentially say like, I hope you know that like you're being treated differently because you're white and also thank you for like because that you see you're being treated differently for you white that you're still saying stuff about so I'm trying like I want to be careful that I don't like 
slide into like some white savior complex because I realized that I am like I the I'm also benefiting in this work because as I realize kind of like the mentality that I was like you know I'm a New Yorker through and through this is my state the problems Mm -hmm. that culminated in this at this hospital were things that like I was like raised in and around my whole life um so I just wanted to yeah just even if it doesn't like feel free to not put that in the podcast but even just for you like um I there's a a quote that says like if you've come here to to help me break my chains like you can get lost but if you've come here because you realized your oppression is bound up in my own then let's work together and that's how I I hope to approach this work I love that yeah I'm glad that you mentioned that um I'm glad that you mentioned that. And if it's okay with you, I think that's necessary to include. Yeah. Because um, I think it is seen as a, um, this this wasn't the way I was intending it, but I guess it could have been, um, or you probably get it a lot, um, being viewed as the white savior. Mm-hmm. But it's an injustice to humanity. Yeah. Period. <laughs> so I'm glad, I'm glad that you mentioned that. And it's, it's definitely necessary um what you're bringing to light um as far as injustices being a human thing and not a racial thing yeah thank thank you so much for giving me that the the space to talk about all that yeah no problem at all um was there any other um any any ways that we can help out um like practical ways that that we can help out. Um. Yeah. I. So I think if anyone is interested in the things I've been talking about, they can check out my website, which is brooklyngrows.com, and um, I've been uh, blogging about a lot of the things that I, um, a lot of the things that I mentioned today, and trying to. Um, I've started to put some of the emails that I sent to my supervisors with and like contextualize them. And I really just am hoping that it helps kind of the larger public under, like we're a public hospital. So mm-hmm. um, I want the public to understand what's happening. Um, yeah, most definitely. So I would love for people to check out the website. If um, um, Signal boosts me on social media, if you see a reporter who's talking about this issue, um, say like hey you should talk to this nurse um okay got you and um and then if you are in if you are in new york or in new york city feel free to reach out to me personally um if you have any concerns about making care about where your baby is receiving care um i you know i'm really uh i'm i still have relationships with several of the parents who i worked with uh, several of the parents of babies i care for in this NICU um, and I'm uh, wanting to work with parents who want to do, get involved with any kind of political advocacy. Um, and I guess I just, last thing I want to say, like, for all you NICU parents out there, like, I just want to send you love and support and, like, yeah. like, our society should be doing such a much better job of 
of supporting you. And I'm sorry that we're not. And I um, I hope that we can work harder to make it so that in the future, it is not such a fight and struggle when pa uh, parents and families are already going through like a really difficult period in their life. Yeah, most definitely. Thank you again for being willing to, um, you know, be a part and share your experience um, and just, I mean, trailblaze, really. Um, thank you for, for being a part of the show. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much. I hope you have a great day. Yeah, you too. Did you enjoy this episode? I'd love for you to continue the conversation with those around you. One way you can do that is by purchasing the MSE Podcast Conversation Starter Stick, available at bygracenp.com. Be sure to leave a review on one of MSE's listening platforms, share with a friend, and join the My Sentiments Exactly podcast community on social media at MSE Podcast. The podcast is available for listening on all major streaming platforms, bygracenp.com, and on my mobile app. Hope to hear from you soon.